Please take your copy of God's Word and turn back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. And today we will begin in verse 6 and work through the very end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and I'd encourage you to grab it. And I think it's on page 540, maybe 541, where you will find this. And if you have your Bible and you're kind of struggling to get there, just go to the New Testament, go back a couple of verses or a couple of books, four books, I believe, go backwards, and there, and there you'll be. You'll be at Habakkuk. So if you found your place, uh, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. This is God's response to Habakkuk's quandary about the Babylonians and whether they will go on conquering nations forever, which gets at the problem of evil. Will the wicked triumph and remain um, unpunished before God? And God's response, he gives five woes of judgment. And that's where we find ourselves today in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill, your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. R.C. Sproul is perhaps one of the greatest theologians of the past uh, century, and I think he will be remembered as that through history, not maybe because of his, uh, the way that he has researched and written some giant 
masterpiece of theology, but because he's such a great communicator of theology. He, ha- he has to be probably the best communicator of theology where he can just communicate truths that other people struggle to communicate in such a way that is so clear that anyone can grasp them. That's really his gifting and his talent. And um, as you know, he's one of my favorite teachers for that reason, just because of how clearly he can communicate um, and how down-to-earth he really is. Well, a couple of years before he died, he was at a conference, I believe it was the Ligonier Conference, and he's, he's uh, you know, got his oxygen on, and he's looking pretty, pretty sick. And um, a question came in from the crowd. And the question was something like this. It was, um, given the nature of all that's occurred in the world and what happened in the garden, do you think maybe God's judgment was too severe? And uh, if you know what happened, then you know what happened. But here's, here's, what, here's how it goes. So R.C. Sproul goes, hang on a second. You know, and he's, he's kind of got his, his brows furled because, you know, he's, he's, passionate about, he's passionate about God and God's holiness. And he says, hang on a second. He says, and he starts to recount Genesis. He says, this creature of the dirt, that's how he refers to mankind. This creature of the dirt defied the living God, blatantly sinning against him. Prior to that, God had told him, that the day that you do this, you will surely die. And instead of dying that day, he goes on to live another day. God clothes him in his nakedness and his sin. And he lives another day and another day and another day. And the consequences of that sin would be passed down through generation to generation. He said, and, and, and the punishment's too severe? And that's when he turns to the crowd and you know what he says. And he yelled at them. He said, what's wrong with you people? And that's just been burned into everybody's mind. What's wrong with you people? That the punishment of God is too severe because he said, this is the problem with the church today. That's the next thing he said. We don't know who God is. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. And that's how someone could ask such a question. I think he hit the nail really on the head um, you may think, well, the problem in the church today is preaching or lack of preaching or discipleship or all of that. But it really stems down, it comes down to this. We don't know who, who God is in large measure. We've kind of forgotten key aspects of his nature and his holiness, and we've lost a reverential fear and awe of a holy God. And that's why we have things like, uh, you know, um, right down here behind Brahms, we'll have TIE fighters in the summer. It'll be... Uh, a weekend at the movies or whatever they call the stuff. And, and TIE Fighters and Star Wars and who knows, Marvel and maybe the Marvel characters. And that's why that stuff, because we've forgotten who God is. There's no reverential fear and awe of God. And this is interesting to think about because even demons who are in outright rebellion against God even demons who are in outright rebellion against God, they have a correct understanding of who He is, and therefore they have a correct fear. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That means they shake. Uh, 
There's also this interesting passage of Jesus healing the, the man who has many demons, the demons called legion, um, in Luke 8, 26 through 28. It's one place it's recorded. And the man is, of course, a, he's a menace to society. He's empowered. He can't be restrained. He's a wild man. And, and so Jesus comes, and the man falls down at Jesus' feet. And the demons cry out to him, uh, to, to Jesus, to have mercy. And I, they say, I beg you, do not torment me. These, these demons, they understand something about God that's been forgotten. God's judgment is just and severe. It's a flip side of His holiness. He's holy and perfect, and we cling to His grace and mercy, which flows from His character. But the other side of the coin of God's holiness and His perfection is His justness and His severity and His judgment. It's enough to make supernatural beings quake in their boots. And we think God would be honored to have a latte with us at the coffee shop. We of all the creatures God has ever made are without a doubt the most disrespectful creatures He's ever made on the face of the earth. And so there's a need to be exposed to these truths and one of the reasons why we don't know who he is is because there's avoidance of passages that deal primarily about judgment and wrath and his destruction of the wicked and how that's all a good thing for us, especially in taken in the context of the problem of evil and suffering, which is how it comes to us in Habakkuk. When we encounter in Habakkuk deals with this topic, the severe just judgment of a holy God upon the nation of Babylon. In our text today, in 6 through 20, we see these five woe proclamations of God. Now, a woe is a prophetic expression of impending judgment and doom. It's the best way I can describe it. That's what a woe is. So, Hosea 7.13, we read God saying, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. So, you can see the woe is an impending word of judgment or doom. And Jesus uses these, he picks up the prophetic woes of the Old Testament in his life and ministry, and he pronounces woes upon the Pharisees. And you can go read all of them. There's a lot of them, but here's just two from Matthew 23 through 13, or 13 through 15. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make a sing- to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And he continues on and on. It's just like he's body blowing them. Bam, bam, just nailing them. It's a prophetic expression of impending judgment and doom. And God gives five woes to Babylon through the prophet Habakkuk today. Now remember where we've been so far, where these woes come from. The book began, Habakkuk is lamenting the condition of Judah. God, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you making me look at evil and wickedness all the day long? He's lamenting the condition And God answers that complaint, and he says, I'm going to do something about them. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to judge Judah, and 
I've raised them up supernaturally. They're a supernatural empowered army. Their rise is so rapid, you wouldn't believe it if you were told. And that's God's answer. Then Habakkuk says, I, I can't get my mind around this. They're more wicked than the wicked people of Judah. How can you, a holy God, he's, he's not accusing God of wrong, but he's just trying to grapple with it, like anyone really would. And he's lamenting. And it gets to the problem of evil and God's relationship and his sovereignty over all man and all nations. And the final question is, are you going to let this go on forever? Will they go on mercilessly killing nations forever? Then God responds back to him. And we saw the great section about God's word and faith and the just living by faith. But now God tells them in verse 6, here are woe proclamations upon Babylon. Babylon's going to be destroyed the judgment of God will fall upon the wicked. And in this, these five woes, we really see that it's not just about Babylon. This is, these expressions of woes are characteristic of God's judgment throughout world history. How does God judge? We often put it off to the end, like there's a coming day of judgment. And that's, that's, that's true, and there's an element of it here even. But God has built into the world ways in which his judgment falls even today. And that's what we see in these five woes. That God will judge and he is just and his judgment is just and it's severe. Now, why are texts like these important for us? Which we don't encounter them very often. Well, the, first, they can give you a better understanding of the reality of the human condition. We are indoctrinated with truths about the human condition that just are not true. And the Bible can give us a more accurate picture of the reality of the human condition in the fall, and thus the reality of the nature of our capacity to sin and how deeply sin has affected everyone. As we move through these woes, you will come to understand there is to a degree a Babylon in every one of you. And if we have not expressed our ways, our sin, our sin in the ways of the Babylonians or our sin in the ways of other people, the only difference is that God has restrained us and shown us grace and mercy in keeping us from what we are capable of. And we see insight into the justness of God. We see how truly just and severe His punishment is of the wicked. And that's why these texts are important. God will know, by no means clear the guilty, as he tells Moses. No one gets away with it in the end. Right? No one gets away with it in the end. Hitler didn't get away with it because he committed suicide, supposedly. Right? God's judgment, the cup of his wrath, always falls eventually, either in this life or in the next life. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. So my purpose today as we look at these passages, see the judgment of God and its severity is also to, to give you a reverential fear and awe of Him, which maybe you've lost or never had, but also simultaneously, simultaneously to help you to see Christ as the one who has stood in the gap for you and taken the cup of God's wrath.
so that the woes that fall upon Babylon don't fall on you. So let's look at these five woes today. Five woes that reveal how God's judgment falls upon the wicked, if you're taking notes. Five woes reveal how God's judgment falls upon the wicked. The first woe reveals the judgment of reaping what you sow. The judgment of reaping what you sow. That's what the first woe reveals. Verse 6 begins with a taunt. So, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? So it's like God is taunting the Babylonians with their impending destruction, but he does it in a way as if he's putting his words in the mouths of all of those the Babylonians have oppressed and conquered. That's how God is expressing these woes. And it comes in the form of a taunt. It's interesting to think about taunt or, you know, God taunting or is, you know, what is this about? Well, I kind of I thought about David and Goliath. It may be the best taunt in the Bible, maybe other than this taunt. Uh, David and Goliath, as you remember in that story, Goliath had come back and he's defying God, the living God, and calling out the Israelites and really exposing them as all as cowards. But he's dishonoring the name of God. And so here comes David, the little shepherd boy, right? He's probably like a teenager, but he's nothing like Goliath or even his brothers. But he fears God, and he has a passion for the holiness of God's name. And so you know, you know the story. And as David goes out to, the, 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 to, the, to fight this Philistine giant, he taunts him. We may have, you may have overlooked it. David taunts this gigantic killer barbarian. Let's see what he says. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So he taunts him before he takes off running at him and kills him. Swift perfectly executed blow. God is taunting the Babylonians. Right? They're the ones who are unstoppable. They're the Goliath of a nation who swallows up any that they want. And so now God stands and he taunts them. He says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to utterly destroy you. And here are five woes of judgment and you're helpless to do anything about it. But he puts that taunt in the mouths of those who have been conquered. And the first woe is really this. You have plundered, and now you're going to be plundered. It's the judgment of you reap what you sow. Verse 6, 7, and 8, they communicate that the Babylonians by force have pillaged and by violence have taken things not their own. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And who loads himself with pledges. To load yourself with pledges is something like extortion, right? So they may utterly decimate and lay waste an entire city-state or capital. And they come to your city, and they say, you want that to happen to you? Pay up. They're like, they're like the mafia, right? 
So they're, they have loaded themselves up with pledges. You pay up or you die. They're extortioners. They've taken everything by violence and force. And God says that all of those nations that they have conquered and those that they have extorted, the remnant of those, the debt is coming due eventually for the Babylonians. They're going to reap what they sow. The plunderer will be plundered. Look at verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. God is built into the world. This is a system of his judgment. It's built into the fabric. It's like, it's like a, the laws of physics. Well, there are God's moral laws of physics built into God's creation. One of them is you reap what you sow. If you sow violence, you reap violence, right? This is not karma, some like force or thing that's out there. It's God's active judgment upon the wicked. It's God actively judging the wicked in real time. Jesus, remember he tells Peter, because Peter's ready to get, to get after it, he takes his sword out, chop off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that is this judgment upon the Babylonians. If you live by violence, your violence will return back upon your own head and destroy you. Eventually, right? The Babylonians, like I said, they're extortioners like a mob boss. And you could, you could read about mob boss Albert Anastasia, who was, the, uh, he, he was able to climb the ranks because he established this, this like league of hitmen. They called themselves like Murder, Inc. And, you know, one day he goes to get his hair cut and a shave and like 10 o'clock in the morning and goes and sits in the barber chair. And when he least expects it, when he lets his guard down, Men rush in, they shoot up the place, and that's the end of Albert Anastasia. Because if you sow violence, you reap violence. And it's not karma, it's God's judgment upon the wicked. That's the first woe. You plundered, you will be plundered. So first woe reveals the judgment of reaping what you sow. The second woe is the judgment of self-destruction. The second woe begins in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. God has built into the, into the world another system of judgment. It is this, that is that those that uh, seek to attain security and prosperity for themselves by wicked means evil means actually are doing self-destruction to themselves and ensuring their own demise. And that's what's pictured here. They, they, through evil gain, they thought that they could take from all of the surrounding nations and build, and the picture is like an eagle building its nest up in a cliff. No one can get to it. He's safe from harm. He can't be conquered. And that's what they've done. They've taken through evil gain and conquering and all of their pillaging, and they try to build massive cities and fortresses and high walls, and they say to themselves, we're secure. But because of the way that they have done it, they have guaranteed their own destruction. So their doing evil in the world is actually the judgment of self-destruction upon themselves. 
Verse 10, 210. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Right? And then he tells them, the stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So you have built a mighty nation for yourself by killing, mercilessly killing and pillaging and plundering. And even the, the structures that you build, they cry out to a holy God like the blood of Abel. That's the picture. You've built this great fortress. The fortress itself cries out to God for judgment for what you have done. It's the judgment of self-destruction. The good gain you think you got for yourself becomes the means by which you're destroyed. I thought of two examples of this that hit relatively close to home for us. The beginning of our nation and the use of slavery to build enormous amounts of wealth and security, especially in the South. While England was able to abolish slavery without a war because of the work of Christians like William Wilberforce, we had our bloodiest war. More Americans died in the Civil War than even in World War II. Incredibly bloody war. And I see in, I see in that... I see that in this text. Through wicked and unjust means, our nation tried to make itself secure. And the means of all of that gain turned around and became the judgment of God upon us. Thomas Jefferson quote at the Jefferson Memorial is interesting. And it kind of captures in a way, uh, in a kind of prophetic way, uh, this. You can go to the Jefferson Memorial and you can read this on one of the plaques. He said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are a gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Commerce between master and slave is despotism. And the judgment of God fell upon our nation in a severe way that it didn't in, in England. The other I think about that is this. Women are told today, and they believe it in large part, and the majority of women in America believe this today, that in order to be successful in this world, to have a stable and a secure life where you can prosper, they must have the right to kill their own children in the womb. This is the sacrament of the pro-choice movement. It's the sacrament of feminism. A woman must have the right to terminate her own child in the womb, to kill her own child. Millions and millions of women believe this lie. They believe that they cannot be successful in this world if they, if they don't do that. And millions of women, young women, get pregnant, and they believe that if they're going to have a successful life and have a career and have security, they have to kill their child. And they've done it, millions of them. Many men believe this too, and I've encouraged them to do the same. So the means of establishing their security and their careers is their self-assured destruction. The blood of millions cry out to a holy God. 
Like the bricks and the wood of Babylon cried out for justice, the blood of millions of babies cries out for justice. And you should tremble because God's justice will not sleep forever. But even if he grants more time to our nation, all of the individuals involved in this murderous crime against humanity will face the judgment of God. They've brought destruction upon themselves. That's what's communicated here in this woe. The judgment of God is coming. The bricks of your house, if you've built your career off the murder of your child, your own house cries out for justice. The judgment of God is coming. This is the woe of the judgment of self-destruction. The first woe reveals the judgment of reaping what you sow. The second woe reveals the judgment of self-destruction. If you seek for security by evil and wicked means, you destroy yourself. The third is the judgment of futility. The third woe is the judgment of futility. It's found in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? This is the judgment of futility. And God often judges with futility. Right? And so the Babylonians, right, they have, they have rose quickly. They've established a great empire. They've built all of the stuff, and God's saying it's for nothing. You've labored for this for merely fire. Your city is but kindling. It's going to burn. That's what God's telling them. You've wearied yourself for nothing. It's the judgment of you're spinning your wheels and it's all for nothing in the end. You're getting nothing out of this. It's very interesting to think about God judging people like this actively. And it happens even today. There's, in Deuteronomy 28, 30 through 32, there's this interesting idea of this judgment of futility that God communicates even to his own people. If they abandon him and they break covenant with him and they become idolaters, God tells them this. And again, remember, God has built these ways of judgment into the world. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will ravish her. You're going to have a wife and you won't even be able to sleep with her. Somebody else will. You'll build a house and you won't live in it. You'll plant a vineyard and you won't enjoy its fruit. Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people. You'll have children. Somebody else will raise your children. It's a judgment of futility. There's a really kind of interesting, obscure passage. God communicates in so many interesting, neat ways. He says in Isaiah 28, 20, this is what God's judgment of futility is like. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself out on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. That's what God's judgment is often like. It's like being on a bed you can't stretch out. You can't get comfortable on. No matter which way you turn, you can't get comfortable. You toss and turn all night. It's almost like torture. You've got a blanket that can't actually cover you. It's too small, and so you're cold. And so you're tumbling around and trying to cover and get comfortable. It's futile. But you're like a hamster on a wheel. You're running and you're going nowhere. And in our passage today, we see that no matter how much effort and how much energy... The Babylonians have put into building their empire. It's all for nothing. 
It's for fire. Their cities are just meant for the burning of the next nation. And they're wearying themselves for absolutely nothing. And this is from the Lord. He, tells, he, he says that in the passage. Is it not from the Lord? That people, they labor merely for fire. Nations weary themselves for nothing. And this passage is important because it, it doesn't just teach the judgment of the, the futility of the Babylonian Empire. It explicitly reveals why all of their efforts are for nothing. And it is this. In verse 14, the reason is found. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And if you remember, this is a messianic passage. He's quoting from Isaiah, the stump of Jesse. And if you read through that passage, you get to the very end, he quotes this. But if you read the whole passage, you'll see it's about God's kingdom filling all of the universe. And it's centering on this messianic king. And that's what verse 14 is. And the reason the Babylonians' efforts are futile is because their efforts are not in line with God's efforts. God has a plan for history. He has a goal for all of humanity. And the Babylonians' goal and the Babylonians' plan is not aligned with God's plan. And so their nation is spinning its wheels for nothing. In the end, they'll be destroyed, like every other nation before them and every other nation after them. Assyria, Assyria didn't have this goal centered upon the Messiah. They're gone. The Babylonians, gone, futile. The Persians would come later, and they're gone. All futility. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, a massive, impressive empire, all futile, gone. The Romans... Over a thousand year empire, all feudal, gone. England, the great empire, impressive, colonized most of the world. And then a bunch of ragtag colonials overthrew them. All feudal, all for nothing, gone. The United States of America, we're still here for now. But our goal is, not, the goal is not the goal of God in verse 14. There is not a nation on earth that has ever existed that has had as its chief goal in all of its efforts, verse 14. And therefore, it's all futile. It's all for nothing. And all nations fall into judgment. Because God is working history towards this desired end. Christ enthroned forever and ever over all of history, all of the universe, and it's all about Him, and it's all centered on Him. And there is not a single nation led by men who have that goal. And so it's all futile. That's the judgment of futility. His goal is for people to see Him as He is as well. If you notice that in verse 14, all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You will see and know Him. You will have that knowledge of who He is. It's not just that Christ reigns over a people who aren't in complete alignment with Him. They see Him for who He is, and they love Him for who He is, and their minds and their hearts are filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And this is the goal of human history. 
History is for the glory of God and Christ. Every other effort is futility. And God has made it so that if you spin your wills, and it's the same thing in your life, and maybe you've experienced this in your life, the goal of your life is not your individual kingdom building. You don't exist. You don't exist for yourself. And yet many people, especially, you know, many Americans, we live as if our purpose in life is our own glory. It's our own establishment of our own security, our own fame, and our own name. And if you're a Christian, you may have experienced some time where God has humbled you. And he's brought it all to nothing. Because in the end, it's all futile. No matter what you do, right? If your main purpose in life is not Christ, everything you do for yourself is futile. It's all for nothing. The goal of history is the glory of God in Christ, and it should be the goal of every person that's here that says that they are a Christian. The first woe reveals the judgment of reaping what you sow. Second woe reveals the judgment of self-destruction. The third woe reveals the judgment of futility. The fourth woe reveals the judgment of shame. The judgment of shame. This is verse 15. In the, next, in the following verses. You ever have that dream? I know you have. Where you, uh, I know before I ask it. You, uh, you're running to school and you're late. You're running to school and you're late. And you're freaking out because you're late for a test. And so you burst into the school, and of course the hallways are empty because everyone's already in their class. And you're running down the hall as fast as you can. You run past your locker and you think, I don't even have time to stop and get my books. And like, you got that sense of urgency and dread that you know, it's just, you've messed it up. So you run around the corner, 90 degree turn, you slide and hit the other lockers, and you bounce off and you run, and you burst into the classroom. And everyone's standing there looking at you, wide-eyed. And then you realize you not only forgot the test, you forgot your clothes. You're naked at school. And you feel tremendous shame. Now, I don't know why everybody has that dream. But it seems to be a pretty common dream. And one thing that it does capture is that to be naked is to be shamed. To be completely shamed. And this was very explicit in the Hebrew mind. And that's what God says here that the Babylonians do. The, the imagery that's used here, he says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now he's not saying you get your, your enemies drunk and you get them naked and laugh, right? He, the imagery is of wrath being poured out like wine down someone's throat. There's a cup, and in the cup is wrath like wine, and you force them, like a, you're waterboarded them with your fury and your wrath. But it's not just enough to conquer. They want to shame them. They've got some type of wicked perversity down in the Babylonian heart that wants to utterly humiliate Somebody. Right? So they put a fish hook in them. And they link them together. 
for Marduk, right? Their, their God. And they strip them naked and laugh at their nakedness and parade them around totally humiliated. It's not enough to conquer. They want to denigrate and they like it. They're sadistic. They thought it was to their glory to be so cruel and to humiliate another image bearer of God. And it really gets down to the depravity that exists in people. And God says to them, if you look at the passage, you who have shamed are going to be shamed. I'm going to make you drink my wrath. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will, become, will come upon your glory. And then he lists all the violence and destruction that you've done. So you have taken your wrath and made people drink it. Get ready to drink my wrath, and you're going to be utterly humiliated before the world. That's what God says. It's the judgment of shame. And the sinners before a holy God are stripped bare. We're naked before a holy God. He says, you're going to get so drunk on my wrath, you're going to show everyone how uncircumcised you are. Like God can be pretty, pretty not PG. God can be pretty not PG in how he taunts his enemies and calls down destruction upon them. He says, I'm going to make you so drunk on wrath, everyone's going to see how uncircumcised you are. That means everyone's going to see how cut off. Like to be uncircumcised is to be cut off from God. I'm going to show everybody how depraved you are, how cut off from me you really are. God judges the wicked, and his judgment is just, and it's severe. The, wo- the woes here reveal something important, I think, that maybe we don't think about personally, but it's this. It reveals how cruel and depraved people really are. People are absolutely cruel and depraved. I know the world tries to sugarcoat human nature. We live in a place that God has all these systems of general grace that are keeping depravity at bay, right? But the human heart is desperately sick and evil and twisted. And that's what's communicated here by these Babylonians, utterly shaming those they conquer. But we think we're more advanced as a society, right? We've progressed so far. We're the science believers, after all, right? That's what people appeal to. We have so much knowledge. We're so advanced. Richard Wombrand was a Christian who was held in the Soviet gulags. And this is not too long ago. He recounts the absolute cruelty of the things he endured. This is not the Babylonians now. This is relatively recent. He recounts that he was made to be naked all the time for public shame. Hands tied behind his back, he was forced to drink urine and eat human excrement. While the guards would often laugh and have a great time watching it. Occasionally they would let them eat something like pig slop. But they throw it on the ground, and naked, with hands tied behind his back, they would have to crawl using their own face over to the food and eat like an animal. 
for the amusement of the guards. You see, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed being cruel. It's not that somebody made them do it. They didn't have to do that. They liked it. That's the condition of the human heart. Another example. In 2018, a homosexual man was sentenced in Great Britain to life in prison. His crime was using HIV as a weapon. He knew he had HIV. And what he liked to do was to purposely infect other men and wait until after 72 hours. Why 72 hours? Because there's an advanced HIV drug that you can take within 72 hours and it'll keep you from getting infected and save your life. So after 72 hours, they would receive text messages with laughing emojis saying things like, I hope you enjoy the HIV. Why? Because he liked being cruel and sadistic. This is the reality of the human heart. Depravity exists. We are desperately sick and wicked. You say, that's a little, it's a little extreme. Well, this is what God says in Jeremiah 17, 9 about the human heart. It's desperately sick and wicked. Who can understand it? How about something a little closer to home? Just to drive it home one more time. How about Kingfisher, Oklahoma? How about Kingfisher, Oklahoma? Exactly two hours north of where we are right now. They made national news recently. You may not have seen it if you're not in the sports world. But there is a federal indictment going on, which, of course, it's not done yet, so I have to use the word allegedly, but there's pictures. They made national news because of the hazing, and I don't mean just like some harmless hazing. I mean their coaches seem to have gotten pleasure on the public shaming of the weak. Some boys who were weaker were forced to be tased in front of everyone else. Some were shot point-blank range with paintball guns. Some were beaten, uh, whipped. They look like, it looks like something you would see in a movie, their backs. They were whipped and beaten with wet towels till blood would come out. At full knowledge of the coaches, the coaches would bet on fights as these kids that were weaker were beaten by those that were stronger. And there is allegations that they were told to be sexually abused. Why did it it happen? Because people are cruel. People are cruel and depraved. Here's the reality. Babylon exists in every human heart. The depravity and cruelty... Uh, the Babylonians, the pleasure that people can find in harming others, that, that has the capacity to exist even in you. If not for the grace of God, you could be the prison guards of the gulags. And God's judgment, God's judgment falls upon the wickedness of man in a terrible, horrific way that brings utter shame upon the wicked. His judgment is just. And that should be terrifying to every person that's here.
This is the fourth woe. The first was the judgment of reaping what you sow. The second reveals the judgment of self-destruction. The third woe reveals the judgment of futility. And the fourth reveals the judgment of shame. The wicked will be shamed before a holy God. Woe five reveals the judgment of helplessness. Now this woe is the woe about idolatry. The Babylonians are idolaters. But what the woe reveals about their idolatry is the helplessness of the Babylonians before the one true and living God. You look at your passage. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For a maker trusts in its own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Here's the futility of this whole thing. There is one true and living God, and the Babylonians think Marduk is going to help them. He's nothing. He's some thing that you crafted. Some artist made him. You think he, he can't even speak. right? He has no, no breath. <coughs> he can't talk. There's no life in him. And these Babylonians think that their stupid false idols can deliver them from Yahweh. And Yahweh is telling them there is no help. There's no help. <coughs> Wrath is coming, and your dumb little idols are nothing. So bow down before them, call out to them. Say, awake, wake up, come and help us. <coughs> the wrath of Yahweh's coming, wake up, rise up. And they're nothing. It's the judgment of helplessness. When God moves in judgment to judge the wicked. There is nothing and no one in the universe that can help you. That's the point of this woe. Verse 20, Yahweh's in his holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before him. This terminology of keeping silent <coughs> before Yahweh it's like, a, it's like a courtroom. You were watching a televised courtroom. The judge is about to pronounce the sentence, and no one is saying anything. No one's even breathing. Well, this is the cosmic judgment. Yahweh's coming. And mankind can't do anything but hold their breath. Silence before the Lord is fearful awe and anticipation that His judgment upon the wicked is finally being unleashed. The God, God punishes the wicked and the Babylonians will not get away with it. No one will get away with it. His wrath and judgment are perfect and terrible and severe. And that's why demons shudder, is they know it's coming. We just like to pretend it's not. Sinners should shudder too. These are the five woes that God, of God's judgment which falls upon the wicked. <clears throat> First woe reveals the judgment of reaping what you sow. Second reveals the judgment of self-destruction. The third reveals the judgment of futility. The fourth judgment is the judgment of shame. The fifth is the judgment of helplessness. Here's the reality. Everyone is guilty before this holy God. 
There is not a person that has ever lived that can stand before this holy God and have the right to not be afraid. There's a Babylonian heart in everyone that's ever been born. And no amount of religion is going to save you. Idols won't save you, but neither will any modern religion. No amount of religion will save you from this God. Education won't save you. Reforming your behavior won't save you. Therapy is not going to save you. Self-improvement is not going to save you. None of it will save you from the just, terrible wrath of this God. There's only one. There's only one that can save. And as God promised the Babylonians, I'm going to drown you in my wrath. Jesus Christ took the cup of God's wrath willingly. Now you remember, <clears throat> he knew what was coming. As he was in the garden and he was sweating drops of blood, of course, being crucified is terrible. But with full knowledge of the severity of the wrath of a holy God, Jesus willingly took it. And as Spurgeon said, he drank it dry. He drank it down to the dregs and drank it all. And th this, of course, is the beauty of the gospel, that we are naked and exposed and helpless before this God. And we have no help in this world apart from Christ. But that Christ has taken this judgment of God is terrifying that's what R.C. Sproul said. The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here's where our astonishment should be focused. There's a Babylonian in all of us. And if you're a Christian here, and I am hoping that all of you are, and if you're not, I'm praying that you would trust in Christ. Either you're going you're gonna to get drunk on the wrath of God, you're going to drink it. Or Christ drank it for you. He's just. He's perfect. He will not spare the guilty. His justice is severe. It brings shame upon the guilty. It's terrifying. And you're going to drink it. Or Christ drank it for you. <clears throat> Stand in reverential fear and awe of the God who is merciless in his wrath and perfect in justice. There is no sin in the universe that will not be made right through the justness of God. But God is gracious and merciful, and that is free to anyone to come to Christ, that Christ will take that for you freely. He doesn't even ask you to do a thing, but come to him. And he stands ready to drink it up, to drink all of your sin up from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. Christ will take it all. And so we can see not only the severity of God, but the grace and the mercy of God. 
how lovingly kind and benevolent and good he is. This is the God of the Bible. Demons shudder. If you're not a Christian, you should shudder too. But we thank the Lord for Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, I would pray that today you would become one. And I'm ready to talk to you. I know any of the elders are. The truth of God's holiness is that he's just. But God is also merciful and kind and gracious. And he stands ready to forgive you of sin today. It requires nothing of you except for that you would throw down your sin on the ground and run to Christ with open arms. And you find him ready to forgive. I pray that you would. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we see, God, that you you are often in our minds different than you reveal yourself to us in the Bible. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid of you because of Christ. We don't need to fear you because of Christ, but I pray that we would recapture a respect and an awe and a reverence that maybe we have lost, which would make us to take our own sin very lightly. And so that's what I pray for our church, <clears throat> that we would have a new appreciation for all of your perfections and how just you are. And that as we look at the world and we see the problem of evil, we see what mankind does. We see what we do to each other. God, we know that you're just and right to judge. And that we should be judged for our sin. But give us a new appreciation for what Christ has done for us. Help us to stand in awe that he stood in our place. And he made it so that we could be forgiven. And that we could come into right standing with, in fellowship with you. And find our greatest joy and hope in who you are. God, I pray for those that aren't Christians today. I pray that they would take these great, this passage as a great warning. A great warning that they're in great danger. But they're only moments away from safety in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.